Hello and welcome to MindQuest. I am your host, Miguel Morales, and this is Mission Control Center. Hello and welcome one more week to Mission Control Center, your one-stop shop for IT careers and recruitment advice. This week we interview Gregor Sati, a Glasgow-based Azure architect at Dutch firm Intercept. He helps run the Glasgow Azure user group and discusses with us his career in IT and how to become an Azure MVP. Make sure to visit mindquest.io slash blog for the full interview. There you will also find a new IT job hunting guide. But with a further delay, let's welcome Gregor. Hi, Gregor. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Tell us a bit about how you got started. How did your career in technology begin, and why did you choose Microsoft Technologies? So I went to college to do computing. And just kind of basic computing stuff. And I kind of kind of liked that. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do when I left school. So I'm one of these people who had no idea. So I did that. Um, really enjoyed it. Got on, got on great. Then we passed that course, which was which was cool. And then we did the next year, which was called an HND. So you've got like a higher national certificate and then a higher national diploma, which is just year two of the course. So again, we did that. We did some more computing. Got a little bit more into programming. Just general stuff, not anything too complicated. did quite well at that. And then from there, one of my college lecturers basically said, would you like to do a part-time job learning some of this? So at this time, I was learning AS400, which was quite a long time ago. So I started doing that part-time, got off to work for a, a bus company to do some AS400, and that's kind of how I got started. After that, I then went to university. So I went to Paisley University, just to the west of Glasgow. I managed to do a one-year degree in uh, media technology which is slightly computer-related, even though it sounds like media. It was more kind of programming and stuff like that. Left there, I basically just applied for a developer role. Had some Microsoft experience, just with things like Excel and Word, so nothing really too too deep. I started learning HTML from, from Notepad, believe it or not. So that was back in the day when HTML was a first was a first thing. So, yeah, using Notepad to code was, was interesting. I was learning Java, even in, in Notepad as well. It wasn't even an IDE. So that's kind of how I got into Microsoft Technologies, just using basic programming and applied for a job in Stirling and got my very first junior role at a software company for a company called Interactive Developments. And I went in there as a junior with absolutely zero experience, so it was quite frightening, but really exciting at the same time. I was really lucky. There was a very senior uh, lady who was the kind of senior programmer, the senior dev, and she took me under her wing and basically showed me how to write code properly and test it, deploy it. More importantly, write good tests to the code that I was trying to write, which wasn't very good at that point. But she kept me right, um, and that's kind of how I got started. Very lucky to have someone mentor me like that. And then you became one of the first 50 Microsoft Certified Solutions developers in the world. How did that happen? How did it feel? After about three years, I kind of progressed from um, VB6.net started coming out, so Microsoft.net started coming out. Um, and when I was in beta, I was kind of learning that as part of my job. We're kind of moving away from VB6 and moving towards Microsoft.net. So I was kind of learning that, uh, learning that during the day, learning it at night as well, as we was doing my, my day job. And there was a MCSD, which stands for Microsoft Certified Solutions Developer. So this was kind of like the first time they'd ever brought these set of exams out. I think it was two exams. And I went for this and I passed them first time, which was really cool. But mainly because I was doing a lot of studying and hands-on. And I, funnily enough, I got a letter in from Bill Gates, basically a signed letter and a copy of the software, saying that I was one of the first 50 people in the world to have passed that, that exam. So I don't actually still have it, which is really gutting. When I moved house, 
I must have got rid of it, but I actually got the Visual Studio box with all the posters and all the CDs in it, signed by Bill Gates, which was which was pretty cool at the time. And you're an Azure MVP. How can one become an Azure MVP? Three or four years ago, you used to be able to nominate yourself. About two months after that, they got rid of that, so you couldn't self-nominate. Now, the reason behind that was because so many people were nominating themselves, so they just couldn't cope with the number of people who were nominating. So they, they changed it to make it that you had to be nominated by someone from Microsoft or an existing MVP. So I asked someone to nominate me, and eventually uh, I got nominated. And what you do is, basically it's all based on community contributions. The main thing about becoming an MVP is you shouldn't try to become an MVP, you should just do what you do and it will eventually come along. So if you're doing community contributions, which it's all about, things like blog posts, um, doing talks, helping out user groups, all that kind of good stuff. If you're doing that on a regular basis, um, then someone might nominate you. And if you get nominated, you have a form to fill in with all the, the list of all the contributions that you've done over the last 12 months. You fill that in, send it off, and now there's a person who deals with the form, has to contact you within, I think it's like three months, just to let you know how you're getting on. I.e., is your form good? Is it not so good? Just give you feedback. And then it basically goes into the ether. You don't hear anything until you get awarded. So on the first of every month, they come out and basically they communicate. Seven or eight people in the UK have now been awarded an MVP. That's kind of the short version of how it works. No, it was awesome. It really was amazing. It was, uh, it was fabulous. It really was. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I got it. It's probably my biggest achievement so far. What's your advice for those who are just starting out with Azure platform? What certifications should they pursue? I always ask people, what are you interested in? Sometimes it's worth trying to write the, like, the Venn diagram of the circles and put in what you like and what you don't like. So are you a developer or are you more an ops, ops person? Can you code? Would you like to code or do you not want to code? That's kind of how you start. I always say to people, what's your background? Now, some people don't have any background um, and they're just learning the very from the very start. So if you want to learn from the very, very start, it's probably best to start off with the Azure Fundamentals exam. And I always recommend, in fact, that you start off with the Azure Fundamentals exam because it'll give you a nice introduction to the Azure exams. It'll also let you know that what what you're studying, you've actually learned and you've, you've managed to pass a fairly tricky exam. If, you, if you're new to the cloud, the Azure Fundamentals exam is actually a little bit tricky because it asks you quite a lot of things. If you've got experience in Azure, fair enough, but if you're, if you're new to it all, I would start with the fundamentals. Try and figure out what path you want to do. Are you a developer or are you more an ops person? So the administrator exam is a good one. There's, there's quite a lot of demand for it. Azure administrators, so people who can kind of set up all the all the Azure resources. But it's getting more and more popular for things like Power Apps as well. Go on to MS Learn, go on to the certification link on there and, and have a look around. Um, try and figure out what, what you're best at and try and figure out what suits you. So that's usually a good starting point. The Azure community online is, is amazing. So if you go on Twitter, for example, there's hashtag Azure family. There's lots of amazing uh, Azure people on there. And if you, if anyone's listening that wants to get started in the career or in Azure and got questions on how to get started and things like that, then definitely please do reach out to me or reach out to anyone in the hashtag Azure family and they can definitely help. There's lots of really, really good people in there, really helpful. There's lots of Azure content for people getting started. If you're stuck with anything, do reach out and some, I'm sure somebody will help. Your background is in development and then you moved into DevOps. What is it like to be all of a sudden in the middle of development and operations teams? It was interesting. I worked at a large bank two jobs ago and the developers were on one side of the fence and the operation teams were on the other and they had nothing in between and I couldn't really understand this. So what we would do is we'd work on a two-week sprint and then we would build a code, test our code 
and I would pass it over to the ops team who would then deploy it. But we would never really speak to each other, and I thought, this is really bizarre. How does this work? This this, this can't be a good relationship. Um, so I got to know the operation team. Um, we were in New York and we were in Glasgow at the time, and I got really friendly with them and kind of bridged the gap. So I actually created a role for myself where I sat in between and I was like the SRE. So it was my job to make sure that the code was all built and tested and then I could help pass it over to the ops team and kind of show them how to deploy it correctly because before that they would just deploy it and it would break because there was no real handover. So I kind of sat in between um, both teams and kind of made sure that the developers were checking code in and building it and testing it, make sure it would work and then I would help the operations team kind of deploy it and document it both sides. So the operations team, anyone could pick it up and deploy it, and the devs kind of had an idea of what documentation to write. So it was quite an interesting role. Um, it was interesting for the fact that before I did that, it was two separate teams who didn't talk to each other. So that was an interesting um, change. And we ended up writing runbooks so that we could pass the runbook on to the operations team, and, and this is how we would deploy it and give it to them, and then they would kind of take the, the runbook and, and, and go with that. So Interesting. But a good, a good way to kind of bring the operations and dev people together. Now you're an Azure architect at Intercept. What are you working on as part of your role? So we work with independent software vendors all around Europe, and we help them kind of move from on-premise into Azure. So that's kind of what we do. So the projects that we're working on these days are basically setting up designs for these companies who want to move from on-premise into the cloud, or they're already in the cloud and they want some extra governance added in, or they're looking at uh, migrating from on-prem into Azure and want some help with getting all that set up. So we design it, we implement it as well, and we also look after it, so we do manage services. So that's kind of what we do at Intercept. Um, really loving it, working there. Really interesting working for a foreign company. So I'm actually in the United Kingdom in Scotland, uh, and I work for a company in the, the Netherlands. So, yeah, it's been really, really good fun. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, a lot of companies have been rushing to migrate to the cloud. What are the biggest mistakes you're seeing being made as a result of this hastiness? A lot of people are in a hurry to get into the cloud. I do some workshops on governance in Azure, so that's basically setting up things correctly from the get-go. Sometimes we see customers who have kind of started in Azure and have created the resource groups and have started deploying stuff and there's no governance in place, there's no kind of rules, there's no naming conventions, there's no limits to what you can deploy and who can deploy what. So a lot of the time when I do, um, I deliver a workshop on governance, it's quite interesting. People are like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. It's just things like stopping people being able to deploy huge virtual machines, stopping people leaving things running. So that's that's an expensive thing in the cloud. You can spin up things quickly, but they can some of them can cost quite a lot of money. So you, you can burn through your credits and your, and your money quite quickly in the cloud if you're not careful. So the main thing is basically putting governance in place um, and kind of doing that from the start. It's easier to do at the start than it is kind of deploy everything and then put governance. You can certainly put governance in, in once you've got your Azure environment in, but it's just nicer and easier to do it at the start. So, yeah, definitely governance is something that people need to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, You don't want anybody being able to do anything. Things like that's not a good idea. I've also seen some poor naming conventions where everything's just like random names and you really hard to work out who deployed what and when and what what is this yeah it's quite funny when you see a mess and you've got to go and kind of tidy it up don't often see that but one or two customers have kind of ran before they can uh, walk type thing thank you gregor best of luck and until next time and now 
This is what happened in technology this week. In case sharing is caring wasn't really cutting it for those who only care about the money, Capgemini has put out a report which confirms that, at least as far as data sharing is concerned, sticking to the old motto can bring important financial benefits for companies. It turns out that having a proper data sharing ecosystem in place can help organizations save as much as 9% of their annual revenue. A proper data sharing strategy can also improve customer satisfaction by an average of 50% and improve productivity and efficiency by 14%. Moving on to other news. Last week, we discussed a supply chain attack that used the software provider Kaseya to infiltrate several managed service providers and thus gain entry into thousands of customers. According to a new study by machine identity management firm Banafi, 80% of security professionals are not completely confident they could fend off a major supply chain attack. Furthermore, the IT community seems to be lost as to who should be responsible for protecting the company from such threats, with about half of development and security teams left pointing at each other. And finally, first it was Office 365, then Dynamics 365, and now it's a turn of Windows 365. As last week's rumors were suggesting, Microsoft announced on Wednesday what it's marketing as the first cloud PC for every organization in the planet. The subscription-based service, which works similarly to game streaming services and lets users stream a full Windows desktop PC from any device, Macs included, is the company's response to growing levels of hybrid work and digitalization. It will now be easier than ever for companies to set up and manage their employees' computers. And that's all for this week. Make sure to follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn at MindQuest Talent and on Twitter at MindQuesting. Thank you for listening and until next time.